Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. Great to be back here at home with you. I love to see what the Lord is doing in the Holy Spirit in our church with our ministry right now. Uh, we have a fast ladies group that are doing some wonderful things that I'm thankful for and talking about doing wonderful things. Uh, I'm also very, very happy and pleased and thank the Lord for Deacon Rob's testimony today. That just so happens the memory verse uh, tied so perfectly into it when he shared that with me initially. I thought, yeah, you got to share that with the church. And we're going to preach and teach on the memory verse and you're going to have that testimony, I think, in mind next Sunday when we're back in Philippians chapter 4 and the Christian's joy, uh, Philippians 4, 4 through 7, because you were hearing in spite of adversity, Rob's heart, the heart of a Christian with joy. And then, of course, you've heard plenty about our, our love life ministry, our sidewalk counseling and praying ministry. We are known in this community as a very strong pro-life church, and uh, we're not ashamed of that. We wear that, bra- that badge loud and proud, and I'm thankful for that. And you could see, I mean, the memory verse tied into that ministry. And, it, you know, being this kind of a church, pro-life that way, is a distinctive, is a distinctive of this church. And we've got some others. And according to some church leaders and a good number of Christians... Um, this church and our ideas about discipleship are thought about as a little goofy, a little weird. Uh, I get that for a couple of reasons. Some will say to me, uh, Pastor Bernie, how can you get people to open their homes in South Florida to host small group meetings? Don't you know this is a very inhospitable community? People don't open their homes. You've even got some guys that don't even like to pop in, you know, and so I can, I admit that's a challenge, okay? But then some say, you planted a church and you expect it to survive and thrive, teaching the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, meeting in a place like this, and on top of that, you don't even have a children's or youth ministry. I'll say, pastor, you must be insane. Must be off your rocker. But I'm about to show you here that we're in very, very good biblical company. Because this idea, we didn't come up with it. This goes back literally thousands of years. Our discipleship paradigm or our method of ministry, unbeknownst to many people in our generation today, actually goes back in time through the first family through the patriarchs like Abraham throughout Old Testament history and all the centuries of the chosen nation and then the church all the way up to the dawn of just the 19th, 20th century. And you say, what? I never knew that. Well, I mean, you're in good company. I didn't either for a long time. Many of you didn't know about this historic means of grace that we're talking about today, about the gathering of God's people being integrated rather than age segregated or separated until you got here. And, you know, I mean, I, I was one of them. 
I, I serve, so you know the background of all of this, because there are a number of you that are curious about this, and even our deacon was saying, yeah, and our retreat, our leadership retreat recently, this is something you ought to address with the church. So, so we're doing that. And the nexus of all this was, I, I used to serve in what you would call a neo-traditional evangelical church. Neo meaning kind of new, but traditional evangelical church. I was baptized in it, learned a lot, grateful for it. But my wife and I, as we grew in faith and grace, we started a family of three, which today is thought of like as a half dozen, easily. We, we read, we studied, we actually checked out our children's ministry at our church. And what I found was it was a madhouse. Yeah, little children running all over the place, strobe lights, this loud rock music, they're wrestling on the ground, and like, what is this? What is this? And, and if anything, you'd get this little felt character story of uh, Moses or Noah's Ark, you know, the obligatory two stories that they go to time and again. And then the Lord called me to ministry, and I was given the opportunity to serve as a pastor on staff there. And I was overseeing discipleship, and so I began to get the, you know, the ministry on the inside, including the youth pastors, and I visited their ministry one time, more than once. And I found that it too was a madhouse. Just a different kind. Just an older madhouse. Mud wrestling. Tooth sucking with, I'm not making this up, with food and stuff and everywhere and all over the place. And fun, 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 but wasn't seeing a lot of Bible there. So I said to myself, self, how did we get to be this way? What is this? Why, why are these age-graded ministries influenced by the same process of public schools in the church? Why, why do they even exist? And so I continued in my own kind of self-interrogation. I asked myself, why is it estimated, according to the research, the best research I could get, that between seven to nine out of every ten young adults fall away from the church, reject the faith they professed by the time they graduate high school before they finish their first year of college. Wasn't the youth ministry supposed to take care of all that? So I pulled a Sherlock Holmes and began to investigate while serving on this church with these programs. And I looked at church history of God's people, and I couldn't even find a hint of what I was experiencing. Thankfully, more importantly... I went to the Bible, and I looked, and I looked, and I looked, and I couldn't see that kind of church worship, fellowship, discipleship, and ministry that I was involved with. So when the good Lord called us to plant this church nearly 15 years ago, I kind of, I guess you could say, downloaded from the Spirit of God this vision of what I wanted to call that we were going to go back for the future. Going back for the future. And that's the name of this message by the way. So for better or worse, we decided to plant Christ Community Church with the idea that the local church of Jesus Christ was to consist of people, men, women, children of all ages, ethnicities, cultures together to worship and fellowship in the praise of God for his glory and the glory of his son. So this message is going to address this question here the mystery of some of what we're doing here. And it's simply meant to answer this question. Why is this church a family integrated church? Why is it an FIC? There's another acrostic for you. I didn't make it up. The answer, 
We're going to go back for the future to find out. So we have this passage in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy means the second law. Okay, It really is Moses' farewell address to God's chosen people. They're about to enter the promised land without him. They were 40 years of wilderness wandering because of hard hearts and disobedience. They're in a place. They're in a desert plain, an oasis known as Moab. So it's like a little pit stop on the final journey here before going into Canaan, which is going to become later known as Israel. And this is the same law, by the way, that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. It's the delivery of the Torah. Torah means the teaching. First five books of the Bible. So it's the same law, but to this new generation. Because God had done away with the previous rebellious one that came out of slavery and Egypt. So this is Moses' final message or sermon to his people that starts really back in chapter 29 because Joshua is going to be his successor. He's going to lead them into the promised land. Okay, But the big idea in towards the end of the book here is he's teaching the covenant okay god's promise to his people what he's going to do for them no matter what and if they do it right their part it's going to go well with them and if they fail to hold up their end of the bargain things are going to go south which it would and he's going to warn them again that there are blessings And there are curses that go with the covenant. So this is a real important message you would think he'd want everybody in the nation to hear, right? In fact, this is going to be a Feast of Booths tradition that they do every seven years, and then it would become part of their daily life and culture. But what's interesting here in this text, that for this message, in this meeting, Moses, under instruction from God, does not segregate or separate the family. He doesn't say, this is heavy stuff, adults come, children go away. He calls for them to all come together, all the families of Israel as one chosen family of God, to hear the preaching of the word, likely included some worship, certainly prayer. And so he's got the families together with and those without little ones, it says, or babies, small children, to adults. Many of what we would call teenagers today, and the elderly, and foreigners even. You can call them strangers or aliens, according to the Bible. Whoever has been following Moses and the people up to this point are invited. Okay? And from this ancient Old Testament passage here, you get a picture. I'm going to give you a snapshot of a family-integrated church that has endured through the centuries. And today, it's kind of like a remnant, like Israel. We're not mainstreamed like it used to be. But I think it's making a, a bit of a comeback. Okay, And you're going to see why. Because I'm going to give you a picture of the congregation and of the culture that was involved as we go back for the future here. There's going to be the teaching here and the benefits of it. And we'll contrast that. Look at the first phrase of verse 12 of our text. We look at the congregation, what it's made of. Assemble the people, the men, the women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns. We'll stop there. This is a congregation of people called together, not separated by age groups or some arbitrary distinctions. You know what a big one today that really gets under me is, is the, you know, you'll, you'll see the place, 9 a.m. traditional worship, 11 a.m. contemporary worship. 
So you got this church for these people, this church for these kind of people. Never shall the twain meet. They won't even know each other. And they're part of the same church. You know, it's kind of like, for me, why isn't there a church for, why isn't there a service for left-handed people and one for right-handed people? Short people, tall people. I mean, in our contemporary church culture, it's like that. I mean, it's all over the place. But Moses wants everybody together, and he's got a purpose in mind. Next phrase in verse 12. He wants them together so that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of his law. Okay? That's a purpose clause there. So that. So you know why they're coming together. The reason to come together, to congregate, rather than being apart, is for the purpose of discipleship. A form of it. Corporate teaching. Literally in the Hebrew, he wants them to be taught. He wants them to be trained to fear and follow God, to do or to obey all the words of the law. So let's look a little deeper at this congregation. Who's it made of? Because it's historic and it is normative. Joshua, Joshua, the next book coming up here, he brings them into the promised land. And he says, Joshua 8.35, there was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Moses did not read before all the assembly of Israel with the women, the who? The little ones and the strangers who were living among them. So Joshua is saying, I'm going to say everything. I'm not going to leave anything out that Moses taught. And it's for all of you together. We talk about strangers or sojourners, literally from the original language, it's just referring to a temporary inhabitant, like a newcomer that lacked, you could say, national inherited rights. We call them immigrants today. If they wanted to follow Jehovah God, they were invited to listen, like invite them to church. But centuries later, even after the Babylonian captivity in the time of exile, God's people return to the Holy Land to rebuild it. They get this teaching again. They all come together. You read it in Nehemiah 8, Ezra 10.1. That scribe, that priest, that teacher says, While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and who? Uh gathered to him out of Israel for the people wept bitterly little ones they're called little ones it's just literally a child it could be an infant could be a baby could be a toddler you name it I mean just look around the room that's what we're talking about it's just like this but tens of thousands of a bigger crowd and you say but wait a minute pastor they're only doing that because they hadn't thought of Sunday school or kids ministry yet right Well, yeah, that's right. And there's reasons for that. But before we get there, what about the New Testament attitude on this? Because so far, I've just been in the old, right? How about the Gospels? Didn't didn't Jesus, when he preached, didn't he have the kids take off and go into the kids' ministry or the nursery? Let's see. Uh, Somebody said no, but really? Could it be? Luke chapter 18, the Lord's preaching and telling parables and... He says in verse 15, it says there, Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them or bless them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. Oh, there's a youth pastor instinct in the apostles. 
Because Jesus called them to him, to the infants, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. So here's the scene. Jesus is outside. You got, he's preaching. You got babies and little children, therefore people of all ages, all over the place in the presence of Jesus. And he actually rebukes the apostles for trying to take them to their first century nursery, which is mom. Take them. They're too noisy. Get them out of here. That's not what the Lord is doing, is he? Right? You might say, oh, but come on. We know God loves babies, and, but there's a time and a place to bless them, right? Well, I mean, there was a time, that time, the rabbis would schedule certain opportunities to have kids in the synagogues come and be blessed and all of that. But Jesus here literally says, because he was always overturning their legalistic schemes and ideas, and Jesus says, don't stop them. Leave them alone. Let them come to me. Don't hinder or cut them off, literally from the Greek. I want them close to me. I love them and I want to bless them, is what Jesus is saying. You say, even in a church meeting? Why not? Is it because a, a children's worker or a pastor in a ministry once told you, hand them over, I'll get them out of your way? That actually happened to us in the Sunday school class that I was teaching when the kids were very young and we first had them. It was a landmark moment. The children's pastor came in the room and noticed that our three were with me in our adult contemporary class, Sunday school class. And they said, those kids are mine. Shouldn't they be in my group? And I said, they're whose? They know. I said, no, they're staying here. And that like, freaked them out. What? That's what it's become. You can't, you can't justify that kind of attitude or policy from Scripture, as well-meaning as it may be. Until more recently, you should know, FIC has been the norm. It's been the biblical principle, a pattern, a practice of congregational life for Israel and most of its Old Testament history and the church until the time that the neo-evangelicals changed that. And you move along in history, I want to show you something else. In the age of the apostles, the early church, both in Ephesians and Colossians, Paul taught the children in those churches to obey and honor their parents. Look at this. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 1. This is a letter. Now get this. This is a letter being read out loud to a church in Ephesus. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. So he's going back to the fourth commandment there on Sinai. Okay? That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. What's noteworthy about that? We know it's about parenting, but in this context today, what's noteworthy there? Paul is speaking to the children directly. That means they had to be in the service, the church, with the adults to hear it. He's saying, children, obey your parents. He's addressing them directly. He expected them to be there and to hear it, as the letter would later be circulated. 
So the point is, Jesus Christ, Christianity is a child's best friend. Okay? So, now you get to know the congregation. Now we're going to move to the culture. And then I'll bring the youth part of this back in in a moment. Go back to your text in Deuteronomy 31. And twice you hear this, verse 12, that they may hear. I want them to hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. Be careful to do all their words of the law. Moses goes on. And that their children, who have not known it, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, as long as you live in the land that you're going over the Jordan, the Jordan River, to possess. Why does he want the children there? The why is important. You always got to know the why for the what. Well, in both verses it says, so they may hear and learn. Hear what? So they can do what? Hear so they can do what? Fear. Hear. Fear. Which is that godly, holy fear of God, which from the Hebrew is that idea of standing in awe with ultimate reverence, honor, and respect for Jehovah God. That truth had to be learned and taught to future generations, which means children, both personally and corporately. Let me show you the personal side. Flip back from Deuteronomy to page to chapter 6 in that very familiar text of the Shema, the great truth of Israel, the Lord our God is one. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, neighbor as yourself. That's big teaching. How should it be passed on? Deuteronomy 6.6. 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You... You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. Gee, that sounds like family devotions and worship, doesn't it? You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, you're going to feed your children Bible for them to eat it all the time, as much as you can. Wow. And what is the big idea there? The parents. The parents are to be the primary disciplers of their children. And the church is not to usurp that authority. Not even a school. Not even a Christian school. And certainly not a church program. Although, let me say this. Those two institutions can come alongside and help. You say, help in what way? Well, like what we're doing today, there's the message in the congregational community and our discipleship paradigm. That's where discipleship starts. You get the word of God from your leaders, elders, preachers, and teachers. Good. The young adults are here for that as well. And they also join the more mature in our midweek shepherd groups. They should. But principally, the responsibility falls on the parents. Psalm 78 talks about that. How about Colossians 3.20? Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. It sounds like Ephesians 6, kind of obvious. But you know what you see there in that verse? It answers the question, should family-integrated church be the norm in every church? Here's another reason why. Yes, the answer. Because discipline... Enforcing God's law with children. Discipline, enforcing children to obey their parents can only be done by the parents. I'm a pastor. I can't take the rod to your children. Can I? I think there's even laws against that. 
You see, discipline is the same root word as disciple making, teaching. Teaching features discipline. Only a parent can discipline their child. Make sense? Who has the authority? So, the teaching has to be exercised primarily by the parent who is the God-ordained authority to do it. Now, this raises an objection, I'm sure, in your mind. I get it on the little kids. But what about the teens? Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Weren't Jesus' disciples like a youth group? Weren't they kind of like hip-hop and happening young guys? Actually, not. Not rel- I mean, just relative to us chronologically. But they were young men. Did you know many of them were fathers, providers of their homes? They were fishermen. They were working for a living. They may, some of them may have been in their teens, in their late teens. They may have been in their early 20s. But they were accountable as men in their society and according to the scripture. Here's another mind blower for you. The Bible says absolutely nothing about teenagers. In the Bible, teenagers don't exist. And for most of American history, they don't either. That is a early to mid 19th century, 20th century sociological concoction to deal with what was called adolescence. That was another made up word and concept. Are you kidding me, pastor? Yeah. Once a child went through puberty, they were considered an adult. Why? Because they could reproduce and have families. They had to be on it. They had to be ready. They were ready sexually and physically. They had to be ready in every other way to go with it. That generation of men in their teens was way more advanced ethically and responsibility-wise than ours today. No teenagers there. You were basically concerned, considered to be an adult or a child. In fact, our ladies group recently studied 1 John 2. They're finishing up that study. And recently they were in the passage which talks about Paul in a parallel, John the Apostle, referring to disciples in maturity, and he puts them in three categories. He calls them little children, then young men, then fathers. Did you get that? Children, young men, and fathers, older men. There was no in-between of this era from 13 to 19 where you just go and goof off and try to figure out some things and do whatever you want to do. Do all the things I used to do. Having said that, a church has a role to play corporately in this. In fact, listen to King David. I want you to hear him as he's speaking to Israel in Psalm 34. Just mark it if you don't want to go there. He's communicating again like his predecessors in Israel to the entire community of God. You'll see how in the language. Psalm 34, 8 and 9. Sounds like it's just for us. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord. There you go. That idea again, going back to Deuteronomy. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. 
Okay, now skip down to verse 11. The context of the congregation. Verse 11. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Keep your tongues from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. He's saying, children, listen to me. I'm your king. I'm your teacher here. This is very much like Paul. He directly directly addresses children. That would be present in the meeting. Yet, we know the preponderance, the weight of Scripture, puts the prime responsibility of biblical formation, teaching and preaching the gospel to the parents of their children, not passing it on to the youth ministers of our churches. Because if you let them, they will do it. They will say today, I am a trained professional. Don't try this at home. Just drop them off because I got it. I got you. You can chill out. And you know, this is their jobs. There are seminary degrees for children's and youth ministry. That, that never was a thing, not even a thought over most of church history. It, it, it really is a form of professional parenting. What I call surrogate spiritual parenting. And I don't want to necessarily, I need to say this. I don't want to necessarily be known as an anti-youth ministry church. No. I want us to be known as a family-integrated church. We want to be known for the positive, not the negative. Okay? I have good friends in the pastoral ministry. In fact, they're all the other way. I'm the only guy that's FIC. But they respect who we are and what we will do and what we won't do. In fact, I have a good friend of mine, a pastor, who's struggling with the idea right now of taking his church to a more FIC kind of model. And then other pastors, they do it some better than others, do like a hybrid thing, a little bit of both. Parents are in, you know, more involved. So they kind of like stay in the shallow end of the pool, we might say. And I get it. It's hard to swim upstream on this. In fact, a North Carolina youth minister put it this way, quote, If I become too pastoral, the kids won't be entertained and they'll go down to the street to the guy with all the bells and whistles. And if I become too evangelistic, I get complaints about the shallowness of the group and the dropout rate, so I can't win, end quote. You know what? Parents can't win either because, as you know, you have values and you have ideas of the Christian walk that can be very different from the youth ministry. And that goes from sex ed all the way on. In fact, the chair of one of the evangelism departments at one of the largest seminaries in the nation, he's a youth ministry advocate. He's got a book he wrote called Raising the Bar. He notes this, quote, The largest rise of full-time youth ministers in history has been accompanied by the largest decline in youth evangelism effectiveness. End quote. So we're putting more into this ministry. We're getting a whole less out of it. Why? You know, Houston, we have a problem. (laughs) But will they fix it? Once the institution, this is the idea. Once the institution of a church ministry grows and builds and youth buildings and programs, it's hard for them to break it down and go back. You see, so FIC is still countercultural today. That doesn't mean it shouldn't be done. Right? We don't go by every wind of doctrine. And we talked 
Let's be fair now. We talked about theological triage recently. This is another one of those secondary kind of picket fence doctrines for the church. I know that. We're not going to die on this hill with people. Even though we think it's a very, very important doctrine and it's a core distinctive of Christ Community Church, we understand that we don't have an explicit Bible verse that condemns youth or children's ministry. There's a reason for that. You don't have that because that ministry didn't exist. There'd be no reason to condemn it. And you don't have a verse that says you have to be an FIC church. You see, the Bible doesn't give a lot of precepts or commands for church structure that way, but it does inform us. It does guide us wisdom-wise with biblical, what I call biblical patterns, principles, and practices when you don't have the precept. How did they used to do stuff? Is that an example for us to follow? Things like that. You see, because the scriptures are all sufficient, aren't they? What does 2 Timothy 3 say? All scripture is given by God, inspired by God, and profitable or good for instruction in righteousness, doctrine, rebuking, correction, that the man or woman of God would be thoroughly equipped in every way or perfect. Does that exclude how you do church? No. This is all scripture. It's profitable for everything in some way, shape, or form. I mean, as an example, we'll talk about today's issue. I mean, Gender castration isn't condemned in scripture. Does that mean you do it? Gambling, smoking marijuana. Do you think scripture addresses those issues in some way, shape, or form? I think so. We have principles. We have examples that help us understand these kind of things as being sinful and not in the will of God. So, since we don't have open response time today, because we're going to take the Lord's Supper in a moment, I'll just deal with one more major objection to our paradigm. And it's, and it's well thought of, well intended. It's asked, what about youth ministry for parents that don't disciple their kids or who aren't children or who aren't Christians, I should say? That was basically the motive, by the way, for how this started about 100 years ago. Same for Sunday school. They were like kids wandering all over the place and their parents weren't discipling them. They weren't in church. And so let's start a program to incorporate that. Now, churches can do some form of youth ministry in those situations. But what we want to do and be good, better, best, we want to be God's best here. What we want to do is lead the next generation to Christ. We want to disciple them because that's the best principle God's given us because the ends don't justify the means. The big reason, listen, the big reason that youth ministry in local churches struggle so much is very simple. They're trying to do something they were never intended or called to do in Scripture. There are exceptions to every rule. God can use any church or any structure to lead someone at any age to Christ. We have to acknowledge that, okay? But we also have plenty of stories and evidence about the failures. We've got disconnected thousands and thousands of children and young adults growing up in children in churches that were deprived of connections and relating to the whole congregation, the whole family, the whole unity as a whole. So as I close, look, the radically simple idea is that we're a simple church, CCC, and we're going to teach and we're going to train lovingly come alongside families 
to do what is possible. And as for kids that don't have Christian parents or parents that are present in the church, I still think they're better off participating in the service and sitting next to folks like you who can show them what church is all about and a family structure. I would rather see little Johnny or Lisa without her parents sitting here next to my wife and my kids or your family and your children than being segregated off somewhere all alone in some building or other part of the church. See, if you look at the Great Commission, folks, you can figure out the most effective way to make disciples of kids and young adults is just for the idea to make disciples of their parents and teach the parents to do what God commands them to do, which is to love God, love people, evangelize, and disciple their own children. Amen? Amen? Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurch.org. And look for the Giving tab at the top of the homepage. 